Cornerstone. Who came excited about Jesus today? All right. That's good because the sermon isn't half that good, so hang on. All right, so we're landing the last conversation together about waiting, to which many of you are saying, finally, I'm done waiting for this series to be over. Isn't it true, isn't it true that waiting is a struggle? Because when you're waiting, it just, it feels like nothing is actually happening. You're not making progress. You're not getting where you need to get. Or if you are, it's surely not going fast enough. It just feels like your life is experiencing that spinning wheel of death that happens on our computers sometimes. And we go, how, does, how is there any advantage to this? How is this in any way beneficial to me to be waiting Is it possible? Is it possible that the reason that waiting is so frustrating is that we haven't looked at waiting the right way? That you and I are absolutely focused on the destination. Hey God, this is the thing you need to do. This is the thing that needs to be accomplished in my life. This is the goal that we've gotta get to. Is it possible that you and I are so focused on the destination and that God is actually focused on you and me becoming. Let me say it again. Is it possible that you and I are like five-year-old children sitting in the backseat of the car going, when do we get there? When do we get there? When do we get there? And it's not about getting there. It's about what happens on the journey. I'm in a really neat season of my life right now because my son is a fully grown man, which means I get to have fully grown man talks with my son. And a little while back, uh, we were uh, just writing together, and I, I just asked him, I said, Josh, when you look back at your childhood, what's like your fondest memory? Now, what he was supposed to say is, this amazing dad that I had. Instead, here, here's what he said. He says, my fondest memory from my childhood is family vacation. And I said, okay, well, which one? Which, which place that we went, you know, was, was it Disneyland? Was it going to the Grand Canyon? Which one was your favorite? He said, they were all my favorite. Because it had nothing to do with the destination. It had to do with what our family was like when we were on vacation together. The incredible talks we had. The, the moments that we shared, the stupid corny jokes we told each other. See, it wasn't about getting there. It was about what happened on the way. Is it possible that the reason you and I are so frustrated with God over this waiting thing is because we keep focusing on the destination and God is focused on what we're becoming on the way. Today we're gonna dive into a Bible character who spends his life waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for God to deliver on what God had promised. And then there comes a moment, he has the ability to end the waiting. And in that moment, he chooses not to. And I'd like to think it's possible. It's because he understood that the goal of waiting isn't about getting to the destination. It's about what God does in my life. It's about what I become along the way. So grab your Bibles and go with me to his story. It's in 1 Samuel. If you're not familiar, if you go to the front of your Bible and then start working to the right, you're gonna get to this book of 1 Samuel. 
If you get to 2 Samuel, you've gone too far. If you get to 3 Samuel, you've got the wrong Bible. 1 Samuel uh, chapter 24, it's the life, it's a moment uh, in the life of a guy by the name of David. Let me set up what's been happening until now. So when David is a young teenager, God has made the decision that the then king, King Saul, was not going to continue as king and that uh, his lineage, his children were not going to be the kingly lineage. And so one day God sends the prophet Samuel to the house of Jesse and he says to Jesse, show me your sons because one of your sons is going to be the next king. And sure enough, Samuel goes down the list of all of Jesse's sons, and then he comes to David, and God whispers in his ear and says, that's the man. That's the young boy who's going to be the next king of Israel. And so literally, on that day, David is anointed king. And then he has to wait. He has to wait and wait and wait until God fulfills the promise. As he's waiting, it just so happens that uh, the armies of Israel are fighting with the Philistines. His dad says to David, hey, go check on your brothers because David was too young to go to war. Take him uh, some food and then report back to me. So David gets to the battle. When he gets to the battle, he finds the armies of Israel lined up on one side of the valley, shaking in fear. Because there's a giant of a man standing out in the middle of the valley who is saying all sorts of curses, all sorts of slurs against God and says, if your God is so good, then show me one man who's brave enough to come down here and challenge me in singular combat. And if that man wins, then all the Philistines will be your slaves. But if I win then all Israel will be our slaves. And every single soldier in Israel shakes in his boots, including the king of Israel, Saul. And it's young teenage David who shows up on the scene and says, how, how can we let this man come out day after day and slur our God? I'll go out and face him. And a young shepherd boy steps into that valley where no other man would go, takes a shepherd's sling, swings it around, and throws a stone that hits a giant square in the forehead and downs him in a moment. And in that moment, David proves that he's got more courage, he's got, he's got more trust in God than even King Saul has. He's, surely he's more capable to be king than the present king, and yet, he has to wait. And wait, and wait, and wait. Saul ends up uh, bringing David into his court so that David can play his harp. If you're David in a moment like that, you think to yourself, hey, wait a minute, I just, I just slayed the giant. I, I deterred the enemy's spirit. Surely I should be like a colonel in the military, something that is reflective of what I've accomplished. Instead, I'm playing background music in the king's palace. And he sits there day after day, strumming his harp, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. While he's in the palace of Saul, he actually becomes best of friends with Jonathan, Saul's son. So much so that Jonathan at one point turns to David and says, David, you've got so many abilities. You've got such incredible capacity. The reality, you would make a far better king than me. You should be the next king of Israel. 
Saul hears about this conversation with his son and, and becomes incredibly jealous and determines in his heart, I'll never let that happen. I'm gonna make sure that the lineage of the king goes through me, so I'm gonna kill David. And now David becomes an outcast. And Saul will chase him for the next seven years trying to kill David so that David cannot possibly be the next king. And for those seven years hiding in the desert, David has to wait and wait and wait and wait. And then there comes the moment. There comes the moment when all the stars align, everything is perfect, David can stop his waiting. He, he, can, he can end it all, he can be king in a moment. And in that moment, he chooses to continue to wait, which is absolutely mystifying to you and me because you and I are so focused on the destination. We're so focused on getting to why in the world would someone who had the opportunity to end the waiting choose to keep waiting? And I would like to think, you ready, that David understood it's not about getting to the destination. It's about who I'm becoming on the way. So grab your Bibles. It's 1 Samuel chapter 24, starting in verse 1. David has been running in the wilderness. He's got a, a band of vagabond men, mostly outcasts and criminals that have been following him. And now Saul is closing in. Verse 1 says, And after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. Here's what you need to think when you think desert of En Gedi. Think Yuma, only worse. It is nasty. I'm just telling you, it's nasty. The only difference between Yuma and En Gedi is Yuma is pretty much flat. En Gedi's got all these like small mountainous little hills, dry as a bone, filled with thousands of caves. And David is hid out in En Gedi. Verse two, so Saul took 3,000 able-bodied young men from all of Israel, and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. So you get the moment. Saul says, hey, you know what? We need to take a rest stop. I need a potty break. And because I'm the king, I'm not doing potty break in front of everybody. I'm gonna go over into the cave. It just so happens it's the cave that David and his men are further back in the darkness. And imagine their surprise as Saul, by himself, unguarded, unaided, comes walking into the cave to do a potty break. Verse four, the men said, this is the day. The Lord spoke about when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. I mean, think about it, David. He's right there. It, ending the waiting is within arm's grasp. All you've got to do is go up and assassinate this man who by all rights deserves to be assassinated. He has been so unfair, so unjust, so cruel to you. You can stop the waiting. And it feels like, right, it feels like God gave him to you.
Then David crept up unnoticed and he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Doesn't kill him, doesn't assess, cuts a corner off of his robe. Verse five, afterwards David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed Lord. Get what he's saying. That man's going to be king as long as God wants him to be king. When God wants me to be king, God will remove, not me. It's not up to me to end my waiting. It's up to God to decide when I've waited long enough. Far be it for me to put my hand in and try to change the waiting. With these words, David sharply rebuked, verse seven, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Think about it. A guy who has been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and every circumstance has piled up that doesn't feel like he's getting nearer the throne. It feels like in his waiting, he's getting further from the throne. And suddenly there comes the moment he has the opportunity to stop the waiting. And he says, no, it's not up to me to stop the wait. I'm gonna wait as long as God wants me to wait because, because you're ready for this. It's not about getting to the throne. It's not about the destination. It's about what happens in the journey on the way. It's about what I'm becoming while I wait. Here's what you gotta get, guys. This, if you can grant, this will change everything about waiting. If you spend your life chasing destinations, hey, I can't wait until I accomplish that, I can't wait until I have enough, I can't wait. If you spend your life chasing destinations, you will constantly struggle with God. Because with God, it's not about the destination. It's about who you're becoming on the way. Grab your Bibles, because there's a passage that just absolutely unpacks this for us. It's the book of Romans, Again, if you're not familiar, if you go to the back of your Bible, start working to the left, you'll find this passage. It's Romans chapter eight. There's part of this verse that a whole bunch of us are familiar with and know. Matter of fact, anytime we run into somebody who's really struggling, have a lot of problems in their life, we quote Romans chapter eight, verse 28. In all things, God works for the good. And when we quote that to somebody who's in trouble, they wanna slap us in the face. If you don't understand Romans chapter eight, verse 28, before the trouble comes, then you're not ready to live it when the trouble comes. Now here we go. Verse 28, it's all our favorite verse. Here's what it says. And we know that in all things, every unfairness, every setback, every struggle, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we read that and go, man, this, that is just so amazing. I, I love that, that, that in every single thing that happens in my life, God is working for my good. And so then what we just do is we say, okay, well then I'm gonna start the my good list. And so what we say is, hey, you know what you know would be really good? It'd be really good if I was popular, that, that, that would be really nice. I'd, I'd, I'd like for people to like me. And, and it'd be really good if I was married. And it'd be really good if I was successful. 
And it'd be really, really good if I had a nice house. And it'd be really, really good if I had a really cool car. And it'd be really, really good if I had kids. Wait till that happens, you may change your mind, but. <laughs> right? <laughs> so what we do, we come up with uh, my good list. Remember, God's working all things for my good. And so we say, okay, God, this, I got the list. Now all you need to do is get on board and cooperate with me to achieve my list. You understand that every single one of these things on the list is a destination. See, we say, hey, you know what? Here's how I know I'm popular. I'll know I'm popular uh, when I have 2,000 uh, likes on Instagram. Then, then I'll be popular. And, and, you know, when I get married, and hopefully you're trying for one, uh, maybe not, maybe some of us more, uh, I'll know I'm successful. I'll know I'm successful when I'm vice president. Did you catch the humility there, God? I, I didn't even ask to be president. Just one of the vice presidents, I'm, I'm good. And then, you know, if, when you give me a house, if it could be like four bedrooms, four baths, and then, you know, a pool in the backyard. And, you know, for the car, I don't know if you've noticed, Ford's got this amazing truck called the Raptor out there. And if I could, if I could have a Raptor, because you know what? Real men drive Raptors. And then, you know, if I could have two and a half kids, I don't, I don't know what I'm gonna do with that other half, maybe make up for the deficits of the first two, but two and a half, right? You understand these are all destinations. God, if you're good, this is what you'll do. And this is where we struggle because the thing about waiting, we're waiting for God to get us to our prescribed destination. And the problem is we didn't read verse 29. Go back to the passage. Romans chapter eight. We'll start in verse 28 again. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You ready? Verse 29. For those God foreknew, you realize, before you were ever born, God knew you. He knew your name. He knew your personality. He knew your entire life. He knew whether or not you were going to believe on Jesus or reject Jesus. God foreknew your life. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined means this. I established your destiny. I, I, I knew where I was gonna take you. What's the destination? He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Here's God's good. Look like Jesus. God said, hey, look, no, no. what you need to understand, I'm, I'm working all things for this good. All the problems, all the struggles, all the good things, all that. I'm doing every one of those things not to get that list done. I'm doing all things to get this done. Three people like that, the rest of us are very disappointed. But guys, think, this is why we struggle with waiting. 
because we are so transfixed on the destination we've decided and waiting for God to get his act together when all the time God has been focused on making you and me more like Jesus because this is the best good. And guys, here's, here's how you'll know if this is a struggle in your life or not. When you pray, do you pray more about that list or do you pray more about this? Do you pray, hey God, if you could just give me a better house and God, if I could just get the promotion and God, if I could just stop being sick, do you spend more time praying about the destination than becoming like the son? Hey God, I know. I know I get impatient and I know I struggle with anger and I know there's moments when I say things that cause hurt and harm. And so I'm just asking you, God, next time, next time I'm irritated, would you just help me control that I would say only words of kindness and goodness to the person who's irritating me, that I would look in that moment like Jesus would handle that moment. God, I know, I know, I know I'm super competitive and so whenever somebody else gets something that I wish I had, whenever someone at work gets a promotion or whatever, my neighbor gets a new boat and, and, and I, I feel jealous and God, would you help me to be able to rejoice when other people succeed and truly be happy for them? Would you make me more like Jesus? What do you pray for? It's gonna tell you whether or not you're chasing the destination or you're focused on who you're becoming. What does becoming like Jesus look like? How does this happen in our lives? So here, here's what I want you uh, to imagine. I want, I want you to imagine that you're out on a walk by yourself. And as you're walking, you happen to come across some railroad tracks. And you think to yourself, hey, it, it'd be fun. I'll just, I'll just walk down the railroad tracks for a little while see where they go. And as you're walking along, you happen to see down on the ground a, a piece of coal. And you pick it up and you, you look at it and you go, boy, if you hold that just right, that's Abraham Lincoln. Abraham, and there's his top hat and that's really cool and I think I'll take this and show it to somebody else and you stick it in your pocket. You walk a little bit further and you think, did it really look? And you reach into your pocket and pull out, and you realize it's making my hand just black. And then you look at your pocket on your expensive jeans, and you're like, dude, it's, it's totally screwing up my expensive jeans. And you take that, what are you going to do next to that lump of coal? You're throwing that sucker away. It's just a chunk of coal. You keep walking down the railroad tracks. And as you're walking down the railroad tracks, you happen to see something shiny on the ground. You lean over, you pick it up, two carat diamond. It's dirty, it's crusty, it's been laying on the ground for a while. Two carat diamond, you stick it in your pocket. You keep walking down the railroad tracks, you think to yourself, was that really a diamond? You reach in your pocket and pull it out. Yeah, it's a diamond, it's crusty and it's getting some stuff on my pants. You throwing that diamond away? Whoa, whoa, that was, a, that was hesitant. You throwing that diamond away? No, why? Because that diamond is worth a heck of a lot. Guess where diamonds come from? Coal. Coal. 
And what is the difference between a lump of coal and a diamond? Three things. You ready? Heat, pressure, time. Turns coal into a diamond. When you came to Jesus, lump of coal, and God said, remember, he foreknew, and then he predestined you to become a diamond, to become just like Jesus. So guess what he's gonna bring to your life? Heat, pressure, and he's gonna take his time. And once you and I understand that it changes waiting, because it's not about the destination, it's about the becoming. So let's talk about this for a moment. So God allows heat in our life, problems in our life. And you go, wait, 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 I thought God loved me. How come God's letting problems come in my life? Because you don't turn a lump of coal into a diamond without heat and pressure and time. And so God, in love, in order to develop you, in order to grow you, to make you more like Jesus, is willing to let problems come into your life that you have to trust him for, that you have to depend on him for, that you have to honor him in the midst of the problem, so that in that problem, you would become more like Jesus. Problems like, there's a person who just hates you, and you're like, I, I don't even know why, I, don't, I haven't done anything to that person, and they're like, my enemy. What do I do with that? Problems like, we were doing okay financially. I mean, we felt comfortable, and then all of a sudden, God allowed this like huge, humongous bill to land in our, I don't know how long it takes to dig out of this. Problems like, I applied to three colleges, not one of them accepted me. Lisa, Lisa all of her life longed to be in full-time ministry. Lisa felt just as called to ministry as I was called to ministry. But I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, ministry doesn't pay all that well. And if you're a youth pastor, it pays even worse. So for all of our married life, in order for us to make it, Lisa always had to work a secular job, even though with all of her heart, she wanted a good thing, right? She wanted to be in ministry all the time. She was always in sales jobs, and she was incredible at sales. She would get promoted to management-type positions, and yet her, fart, her heart still felt empty because she wasn't in full-time ministry. Problems. And she waited. She waited for the day. Not only does God allow heat in her life, God brings pressure in her life. Pressure is those unfair moments. It's the moment your supervisor takes credit for your work and then he gets promoted. It's parents who like one kid other than the other and it's just unfair. I was working as a youth pastor in a church and the senior pastor got up one Sunday and announced, hey, this summer we're gonna do family camp. And uh, we're gonna take everybody up the hill, we're all gonna do camp together as families. He uh, ended up making a phone call, he reserved the speaker for camp, and then he came to me and said, Lynn, 
all the rest of it is you. All the pre-trip planning, all the supplies that have to be rounded up, all the registration that has to go on, all of the schedule and the programming for the camp, and you realize there had to be two schedules, because you have to have a schedule for the kids, keep them happy and going, you had to have a schedule for the adults so that they didn't become bored, had to approve the menu and what was going on, had to plan all of the services we were gonna have together, had to work with the worship team, had to be out there setting up everything before it started, had to be out there tearing it down when it got done. I was up early in the morning before anybody else started getting it ready to go. I was up until late at night taking everything down after I got done. <sighs> We got back from camp, and on Sunday, uh, the senior pastor was standing up in front of the church, and somebody yelled out in the audience, family camp was amazing, and the whole audience stood up and began to applaud, and the senior pastor in that moment went, <laughs> and God works through unfairness to make us who he wants us to be. And then God takes his time. And guys, I'm just telling you, if you're focused on the destination, the time will always feel too long. When I was in Bible college studying for ministry, I completed a four-year program in seven years. Man, I was sharp. I would work part-time jobs. Sometimes those part-time jobs were in ministry and sometimes those part-time jobs were working on a freight dock loading trucks. But now that I'd gotten my degree, I was like, okay, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to be full-time. I'm ready to be in ministry. I put my application out. Nobody hired me. I had to put food in my family's mouth, so I started mowing lawns in Arizona in the summer. I mowed lawns for a year and a half. Pretty darn sure. That God had me waiting in vain. Guys, I'm just telling you, as long as you and I stay focused on the destination, waiting becomes excruciating. But when we realize that waiting is actually the process in which God is making me who I need to be. He's making me like Jesus. Waiting takes on a whole new flavor. What feels like waiting is actually my becoming. Stop and think about this. So David, David, after he's anointed that he's gonna be king and he goes out that day and he slays Goliath, the people of Israel began to sing a brand new song. The song went something like this. Saul has slayed his thousands, but David has slayed his tens of thousands. You realize in that moment, as David was waiting to be king, God was endearing the hearts of Israel to David. As David went and played his harp in Saul's court, thinking that he had this diminished role that wasn't deserving of what he'd accomplished, you realize by sitting in Saul's court, he was able to watch diplomacy, he was able to learn government. He was able to learn judgment. It was about David becoming. When David was unfairly being persecuted and Saul was chasing him to slay him, David was having to lead a group of vagabonds and criminals and David was getting a master's level class in leadership. And when God finally put David on the throne, 
he was the greatest king Israel ever had because he didn't race to the destination. He lived in the becoming that God had for him. My wife, Lisa, as she went through all those years working a secular job, wishing she was in full-time ministry, she was in sales, which means her people skills are crazy good. I, she never meets a stranger. Every room we walk into within 10 seconds of being in the room, she's telling people about Jesus. There are people who come to this church not because they like my preaching, because they like my wife. And then she was moved from management to management to management. She learned all sorts of leadership. Today, she sits on the executive team in our church over guest services. See, the waiting wasn't about the destination. The waiting was about my wife becoming. As I sat there that day and that pastor stood up and took all the glory, I sat in the back of that auditorium and I said, I'll never do that. And so to this day, if I ever receive the spotlight or praise, my heart instantly says, who was holding the doors? Who was mopping the floors? Who was doing all the work behind the scene? And I instantly try to push the spotlight. As I was mowing lawns and waiting to get my job in ministry, what I didn't know is there was an amazing man who was serving really, really well in the spot that God was gonna place me and God in honoring him allowed him to finish out his time. And then when it was right, he put me in that church and I'm telling you when I look back in my life and realize the incredibly important impact of that church on my life, I don't know that I'd be the pastor of Cornerstone if I hadn't been assigned to that church and what felt like waiting was becoming. Because I'm just telling you, when we start putting our eyes and our hopes and our hearts over here and saying, God, I, I'm not worried about the house. If that's not what this is. I'm worried about being more like my Jesus. Then guys, all of a sudden, oh, I realize, you know what? God has totally transformed my anger into patience. He's taken my judgmental spirit and made me loving and gracious. He's taken my selfishness and made me incredibly generous. I wasn't getting there, but I was growing like crazy over here. It wasn't waiting, it was becoming. And guys, there may come the day when God gives us that, but when you've become more like Jesus, this becomes completely different. Because all of a sudden, if God allows me to be popular, I start asking the question, I wonder why God gave me this stage. I wonder what he was hoping I would do so that people would see not just me, but would see Jesus in me. My marriage gets different. Because instead of saying, hey, I'm waiting for you to step up and be my spouse like you should, I go into marriage and say, I want to be my spouse's gift from God every single day. I want them to know how deeply God loves them because of how I treat them like Jesus. I look at success and say, hey, I don't think this is all about me getting another jet ski. Maybe God has given me the success so that I can actually give more, be more generous than the average Christian. Fund ministry. Take darkness back. 
rescue young people. Hey, this house that he gave me, I wonder if I could use it to have a Bible study at it. I wonder if youth groups could come over and swim in the pool. I wonder if interns could live in the spare room. That great car. I wonder how many neighbor kids I could load into it and take to church every single Sunday, change their lives. Those kids, suddenly my job as a parent is not just to keep them alive for 18 years. My job as a parent is to disciple them to be better followers of Jesus than I ever was. When I'm becoming, I don't have to worry about waiting. Here's my challenge. Would we for 30 days, for 30 days when we pray, not pray about any of that? For 30 days would you pray, God, Make me more like your son. Take whatever's gonna happen this day, take whatever struggle I've got, whatever heat and pressure you're allowed, make me more like Jesus. Let's pray. Hey, dear Heavenly Father, we come before you. And God, suddenly what was so frustrating about you that you weren't cooperating with the list, that you weren't getting us to the goal fast enough, suddenly occurs. We were looking at the destination. And all along you were helping us become more like your son. So God, hear our heart. From this day forward, we're in. We're in, turn up the heat. Bring on the pressure. Take whatever time you need to take. Just promise us that when you're done, you'll have taken lumps of coal and made them look like your son. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, today, today we're going to do communion uh, together. And here's what you need to hear me say. There's nothing magical about communion. This grape juice is lousy grape juice. The bread is even worse. There's nothing cosmic that happens because of this. The wonder of communion is what happens in our hearts. And communion is all about a declaration that simply says this. I understand I could not be good enough. I couldn't go to church enough to earn heaven, that it required something to come into my life. It required a savior to save me, to bridge the gap between me and God. And that's why we take communion. It's honoring the fact that we received something that we had not earned. If you're here and you've not made that decision, you don't know Jesus as your savior, it makes no sense to take communion. It hasn't happened for you yet. And so I would just encourage you that when we get to this moment, it, let it pass by. And when that day comes, when Christ becomes your savior, it's gonna make so much more sense to you. It's gonna be such a greater moment of celebration. But today it's not gonna mean what it means to the rest of us. And then scripture also goes on to say that we shouldn't come to this cup 
with rebellion in our hearts, a known sin in our life that we're just going, God, I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to obey you. Scripture says we'd be taking the cup unworthy if you did that. So here's what you want to do today is I just want to give you a moment to make sure everything between you and God is right. A moment to pray. I mean, a moment to say, hey, God, is there anything I need to confess? Is there anything I need to surrender in my life so that I would be ready to celebrate what you did for me on a cross? So you're going to get that moment to pray and get right, and our worship team's going to lead us in a worship song. I'll come back out. I'll lead us in communion. In the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. He said, this bread is my body that's about to be broken on a cross to heal the brokenness in you. Take and eat. That same night, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is a new covenant, a promise, a promise that every one of your sins, every one of your shortcomings has been paid in full and that from this day forward, you enjoy a new status as the children of God. And Jesus said, take and drink all of it. Dear God, we, we come before you and 
the thought that you looked down and saw that we could not possibly bridge the gap, that we would never be able to live in true relationship with you, and in love, you sent your son to fix what was broken in us, to give us communion with you. God, we we don't know how to say thanks enough except to choose to live every day of our life as a statement of how much we love you. So God, watch how we choose to live. And this we say in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. We're so glad that you're part of our community here at Cornerstone. Next weekend, we have our Vision Weekend. You're not gonna wanna miss this. You're gonna wanna be here in person if you can. We are gonna talk about where we've been, what God is currently doing, and where we see Cornerstone going in the future. And we're even gonna have a groundbreaking ceremony for the new building project that we have begun. So I hope you can make it. You're not gonna wanna miss it. And hey, if you want prayer today, Today. Text prayer to 21999 and someone will reach out and pray with you. I hope you have a great rest of your day. We'll see you next weekend.